Very happy to welcome back Fed Guy, aka Joseph Wang. Joseph, welcome back. Hey, Jack. Great to be back. Joseph, so today, you know, you're the Fed Guy, and I, you're American, I'm American, but it's important to not have an American bias. And that's why to, on today's episode, we're going to be talking everything international central banks. And it's a great week because uh, today, Tuesday the 1st, we had the Reserve Bank of Australia uh, have its meeting. And then on Thursday, we have the ECB. I believe tomorrow, the Bank of Brazil uh, reports. So we have a, a big week of, of central banking. Um, how, how are you sort of making sense of things? And, and what, are, what are any some dominant like themes that you see? I think the big overarching theme is that the global central banks are gradually withdrawing their accommodation. Now, we, we saw the emerging markets first do this last year, and now the developed market central banks are doing this as well. So the Bank of England, they're set to raise rates again. So um, I think they, were, they did a rate hike last time, 25 basis points. Now they're probably going to go to 50 basis points. The Reserve Bank of Australia, as you mentioned, I think they were probably maybe some market participants thought they were going to hike rates. They didn't, but they did scrap their QE program. So, so they are withdrawing accommodation as well. Um, of course, we have the Fed thinking of probably hiking rates March, maybe even more than 25 basis points. And of course, doing quantitative tightening. Um, I think the outliers in the developed market so far are the ECB and the BOJ. And the market is pricing in some degree of tightening um, by the ECB. So right now the ECB deposit rate is negative 50 basis points, so negative half a percent. The market is pricing in them going all the way up to negative 25 basis points by December, maybe. Although they've pushed back on that. And you know, that, that's not really, that's not really um, very restrictive. So I think the broader picture is that the world is moving towards more tightening monetary policy. There are some laggards that aren't there. They probably will get there eventually. I think what's interesting, of course, is, is you think about where it starts. It starts with the emerging markets. And I think that has a lot to do with just the world, the way the monetary system is structured. So we have the Fed at the center, the controller of the dollar system, right? So the thing about the dollar system is that it's used globally. So that's kind of a problem if you're an emerging market because economic conditions are different all across the world. You have the Fed setting the price of dollars, but dollars are used even in countries like Brazil and Argentina and China and so forth. So what may be appropriate for the U.S. may not be appropriate for the emerging countries, emerging markets. So when the Fed was keeping interest rates very low um, in the U.S., that was probably causing inflationary pressures abroad because if you are, let's say, a business in uh, Brazil, you could, you know, you could look at your interest rates at home or you can just go and borrow dollars from the U.S., right? So effectively, they don't have as much control over their policy as they, as they as the Fed would. So that forces emerging markets to kind of counteract that loose policy in the Fed by raising rates. So we saw them do that last year, and now the developed market is joining joining them. Right, and I, I'm glad that you brought up the dollar. I think it's important to lay out a theoretical framework for emerging markets non-US developed markets and how they interact with the dollar. So when the Fed raises rates, that can kind of act like a, a sucking in all global liquidity. So in order to respond, uh, foreign countries, especially emerging market uh, currencies, have to, where there are inflation fears, have to raise rates. 
And we saw that with the Great Depression, whereas the, you know, the U.S. raised rates and then Germany had to raise rates, then France had to raise rates, and it was this sort of deflationary death spiral, you know, under the gold standard. Um, but more recently, you know, you can you can point to the the Asian financial crisis in, in the late '90s when emerging market currencies were, were forced to defend their currency by raising rates. That didn't work, and then they devalued their currencies. Joseph, so that's that's a theoretical framework, and it's it's sort of easy to understand like economics 101 but in the real world does raising rates actually work to uh, attract capital because i've heard some people say that you know, you know sometimes like the dollar is at its strongest as rates are actually falling not rising well i think you can't just look at what rates are today but what the market is pricing in the path of path of rates so um i think it does matter for capital flows especially if you're talking about the dollar um so let's say you Fed hikes five hikes this, this year, and you know rates. Let's say get to one point five percent. I think if you have if you're in the Euroland or if you're in Japan and you're facing negative rates, it makes so much more sense to just move your money to the U.S. where you can get, collect some interest. And so that has implications on currency. Um, and like you mentioned, for emerging markets in particular, currency is a policy tool. So their central banks actually target their currency to some extent. So the interest rate differential between the U.S. and their own interest rate has to be taken into account. When the Fed hikes, a lot of people might move money from the emerging markets to the U.S. And so the emerging markets, they have to react to that by hiking as well. So it's just as you mentioned, uh, it's, a, it's almost somewhat competitive in a sense. But the reality is the dollar is a lot more important than other currencies. So other, other central banks have to react to it. The, the dollar over the past month has been on the rise. And when I say the dollar, when most people say the dollar, they're referring to the DXY index, the Dixie, I believe 56, 57% of which is the euro. Uh, that's, that's the European Central Bank. So how, um, how significant a threat to global central banks is the, the dollar's rise? And when we think about the dollar, should we just be talking about the Dixie or is it more important for emerging markets? And, you know, can the ECB afford to keep rates this low because, because it's sort of a, a developed player? That, that's a great question. And I really, think, I really think that distinction you make between developed players and the emerging markets is, is really crucial. So on a broad scale, Overall, a strong dollar is a huge problem for the world. And that again has to do with how the financial system is structured. In many countries, um, emerging markets in particular, uh, their companies borrow a lot of dollars. And so uh, this, has to be, this has to do with the fact that the dollar is a currency of global trade. So if you're, let's say China, or if you're Japan, if you're Brazil and you do a lot of trade, you're gonna have to have a lot of you know, dollars to buy stuff. About globally, about half of trade is invoiced in dollars. And that's not just between you, the U.S. and let's say another country. It's between foreign to foreign as well. So if you are a company, you need dollars. And a lot of these companies are outside the country. What happens though when the dollar strengthens is that the dollar debt, dollar liabilities these countries have become more expensive. So essentially their net worth decreases. So when their net worth decreases, then the people who loan them money, their banking system has higher risk. So a stronger dollar impacts the balance sheets of foreign banks, which makes them less likely to create more credit. And if they can't create more credit, then that hurts economic conditions. So you have a pretty pretty good relationship between strong dollar and poor uh, poor economic growth, especially in the emerging markets. 
Now that's less the case in places like uh, Europe, where they have their own, they're, they're kind of their own currency system, right? They're they're not so much dollarized as, as a lot of other places are. Um, they're doing something really strange there, and I, I'm not sure if they're just slow or not. But if you look at the um, if you look at the inflation data in France or Germany, it's it, it's it's elevated. It's like three percent in France, five percent in Germany, and yet their their interest rates are at you know negative fifty basis points. Now, they're still doing some QE, so uh, I think it's a it's an interesting situation they have there. I think I've heard Lagarde basically tell you that you know don't think about don't think that we're going to raise rates this year. She may be sure change her mind, but I think one thing to note though it's that these interest rate policy decisions are ultimately uh, has a, have a political aspect. In the U.S., uh, you know, we have a federal government. We're kind of unified. But when you're talking about the ECB, it's a whole bunch of different countries there. So the political landscape is different. And the economic situations among each sovereign is very different as well. I mean, you, you have, let's say, the more developed core and, and maybe the struggling periphery. And they have different fiscal situations, different political calculations, and so forth. So uh, that that might play a role in, in how the ECB decides. And I'm not an, I, I'm not super aware of how the politics affect it, but their, their situation, their context is, is very different from, from many other countries. Um, so that, that might affect their decision-making. Right. So Christine Lagarde, uh, head of the European Central Bank. And if, if I gather what you're saying about the union problem, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of like in the United States, you know, in New York City, uh, the average income is a certain level, a slice of pizza costs a certain level in Montana or Alabama. The average income is lower, and and accordingly, like the the price of slice of pizza is less, and it's like that in Europe, except that instead of New York and Alabama, it's Germany and and you know Greece or, or Spain, and these are literally different countries. So it's it's very fraught, and and of course, a key motivator behind the European Union is it's a political uh, union, not not just an economic union. Can you talk about you know so in like 2011, 2012, you had huge uh, spikes in the sovereign debt crisis on uh, Portugal, Spain, uh, um, um, Greece. Can you talk about how the European uh, Central Bank keeping rates low and doing a lot of QE, how does that sort of keep things in check or, or does it not really? You touched upon something really important. So the ECB, for better or worse, is playing a very key political role in keeping the union together. So if there, weren't, if there was no ECB, then I think the barn rates for Italy and Portugal will be very different from, from Germany. And that creates political fragmentation because some of these smaller countries will not be able to fund themselves in the markets without the help of the ECB. So they would have a motivation to leave the union and maybe devalue. And the ECB uh, is really important in keeping the union together because it makes sure all the funding costs uh, across the union are within within a range. So uh, that probably plays a role too in, in constraining what the ECB can do. Um, it's probably hard for the ECB to ever get out of QE since that's such a that's you know, it's kind of like the glue that's gluing together the the the, um, the union at the moment. But it seems like they should be able to raise rates, not a lot, but it seems like they should be able to do that. I mean, negative fifty basis points to twenty five, negative twenty five basis. That's like a super hawk. I mean, that's like a million hawks. What are you guys? Yeah. <laughs> You know, you can see the euro has been depreciating a lot. That I think that that surely has has influenced that interest rate differential. That could become very wide if if the Fed continues on this path. So, uh, a lot of people are going to want to move out of the eurozone and get a little bit of interest in um in in their dollars in 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 the U.S. 
the political lead, I think there's some geopolitical aspects as well that might be weighing on this. We have what's happening in, in uh, let's say, Ukraine and Russia. And usually what happens is that capital wants to get a little bit farther from the geopolitical hotspots. And that would be, you know, to the U.S. for some people. Oh, yeah. I saw some headline about the Central Bank of Ukraine. Did you, did you see a good, are you following what's going yeah, on there? Yeah, yeah. It, it looks like uh, they wanted to hike rates, uh, let's say, I think to 11%, but the IMF was like, that's too high. You know, let's do like 9 or 10%. Uh, that's an interesting dynamic because the IMF, you know, it's like the reverse of what normally happens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's always about austerity, right? Austerity. Uh-huh. I think they've learned. They, they, I, I mean, they they kind of ruined a lot of countries in, in their in their long and painful history. So hopefully, they're learning that maybe austerity and just strict policy is not always the right way. If you recall, I think just last week they were, they were talking about how the Fed should not raise rates too much. A lot of emerging markets can't bear that. So I think they've learned. They, they, they actually have a long history of, um, I think, not doing a very good job, um, especially with what they did to, let's say, Greece uh, the past 10 years. So maybe they're learning and becoming a little bit more thoughtful. Yes, or perhaps Thailand in 1997. I, typically, they're like 11%. How about 111%? But this time, they're... they're <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so, so that's Ukraine. And then, so we talked a lot about rates. That's one channel of monetary policy. Let's now talk about the balance sheet, quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. Let me just pull up the numbers. So uh, the group of seven central banks added... $8 trillion to the balance sheet during the pandemic in a bid to ease markets, contain borrowing costs, spur demand, you know, yada, yada, yada. This year, they're going to add just $330 billion to their balance sheet. So that phrase, just $330 billion, it's a tiny amount compared to the $8 trillion that they've added, but it's still a net level of quantitative easing. How, are, how do you think that that is going to impact, it's an extremely broad question, but how do you think, you know, the, the change of adding 8 trillion to only adding 330 billion how is that going to impact you know the whole panoply of of assets bond yields risk premium stocks commodities growth inflation everything <laughs> i think quantity just slowing down quantitative easing is is okay but when you get the quantitative tightening i think that's when things really hurt so when you when you think about quantitative easing i think it does a couple things one is that it, it puts a bid for longer dated assets right so a lot of people think that you know maybe QE doesn't do anything about interest rates, but listen, the Fed goes and buys five trillion dollars of something, it has to impact its price somehow, right? So yeah, of course, I think it does put lower uh, put pressure on longer dated rates. It's not the only thing that matters, but it, if you have someone who's going to buy five trillion dollars of something, that's going to have an impact. Now that's that's the first level effect. The second level effect, of course, is that. It, it creates a lot of, let's say, money in the banking system that gets rebalanced. So somebody somewhere had, you know, $100 in treasuries. Now they have $100 at a bank and they have to go and they buy long-dated assets or they go and buy IG, move up the risk curve or Apple stock and so forth. So we're going to have less of that. So that's less supportive of risk assets. But what I really worry about is when we have quantitative tightening. Because when you have quantitative tightening, what you actually are is that you're reducing the amount of deposits in the banking system. So there's less money to buy. And on the margins, when rates go higher, because there's less, there's more, let's say, treasuries issued, fewer people buying because the Fed's not there, rates are going to go higher. On the margins, people aren't going to need risk assets as much because they're going to be happy, uh, let's say, getting 
one or two percent in a two, in a two year treasury. So that I think is is very risk negative. Um, we are on a synchronized path where everyone in the world seems to be tightening at the same time, and that could have compounding effects. So when we did synchronize global stimulus um, in 2020, we have global inflation, like the most we've seen in decades. Now, now that we have synchronized tightening, uh, that might also have a synchronized effect across risk assets. And we're kind of seeing that already. So we had this hiccup in the U.S. markets last week. But if you look around globally, you see the same thing playing out. You see it in the Nikkei, you see it in uh, the Shanghai index and so forth. So it, in Australian stocks as well. So it, it, it seems like there's a global risk off thing and, and it makes a lot of sense mechanically. Um, higher rates, quantitative tightening, you know, it's going to reduce uh, reverse lower rates and quantitative easing. So I, I don't think it's like a major bear market or anything like that, um, because we know the policy response. Eventually, when something breaks, things will reverse, right? Fed start maybe becoming a little bit less uh, hawkish and so forth. And if you look at the underlying economy, it's, it's pretty strong. Um, wages are going higher. There is a recent uh, loan survey that just came out yesterday from the yeah. Fed. It was saying that commercial banks are lending a lot because there's loan demand. Now, loan demand, that, that's a very good indicator of economic strength. And when a bank creates a loan, it's it's creating money out of thin air. So that, of course, is supportive of demand and uh, growth and inflation. So I think fundamentally, I think when the Fed says the economy is strong, I think, I think there's a lot of indicators that suggest that they're right. Um, but the financial markets and the real economy are connected, but not the same thing. So we might have, uh, you know, some risk-off moments, but nothing that's that's terminal that would lead to a multi-year cycle, in my view. Just maybe just a overdue correction. I'm really glad you brought up bank lending. A lot of critics, or, or yeah, critics of, of quantitative easing, or just people who who comment on uh, uh, monetary policy, note that you know, quantitative easing is not that inflationary or in fact inflationary at all some people can go say it's it's deflationary and that the true engine of inflation hold, hold your hold your critic hold your critique let me say <laughs> the true the true engine of economic you know, growth and inflation is bank lending on our uh, previous show last week last friday you said that bank deposits aren't really money but treasuries are money and bank reserves federal reserve bank reserves which are liabilities for the Fed and assets for commercial banks, that is real money. Because if you're Bank of America, you have a billion dollars in bank reserves, you can call the Fed and say, I need a, a $1 billion in cash. Can we just, you know, we've received so many questions about your view on that. So this is a question from Byron, uh, the writer of our newsletter at Blockworks, former equity trader, really smart guy, recommend uh, that everyone follow, subscribe to the, the Blockworks newsletter, we can put a link in the description. Byron asks, and by the way, Byron, huge fan of your work, Joseph. Uh, he says, uh, Joseph says bank reserves are money because banks can have them delivered as physical cash money, but they only do that to fill ATM machines and stuff, right? So saying bank reserves are money is kind of a semantic. I, I get this question a lot, whether or not reserves are money. And for me, it's 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 a very surprising question because if, you, if you're at the Fed or if you're in a big commercial bank, I mean, it's it's not even something you think about. Um well, I mean, where do, where do dollars come from? What's the purest form of dollars? It's it's printed by the government, right? So by the Federal Reserve. 
bank reserves are just digital cash. If a bank, let's say, wants to buy treasuries, well, they can just settle that payment with, uh, with reserves. If they wanted to have cash on hand, they could swap that for currency. Um, I don't really understand why that, that, that people don't, uh, people don't think that of as money. Um, it's, it's very much just the CBDC. It's, it's, it's the, uh, original CBDC. It's just that you have to be a, a bank to hold a bank. It. Yeah. 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 I think the term, oh, it's money. Oh, it's easy. These are very like judgmental semantic words. He is, is it inflationary? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's that. I think you're right. I think that's, that's, that's what people think about a lot. So they see that the reserve levels are very high. So maybe the Fed created a lot of reserves. Why is it inflationary? Well, the thing is that a bank is, is not a consumer like you and I, a bank, um, you know, it just can't go out and, and buy a, like a whole bunch of cars and stuff like that. Um, banks have a lot of regulation that constrain what they can what they can buy and what they can sell. So, when the bank has a lot of money, what it goes and does these days is that it goes and buys treasury securities or agency MBS, and that's what you see them do to the tune of 1.5 trillion over the past couple of years. So, um, they're not going out and you know buying you know the stuff that we buy computers cars cds food or something like that they buy what banks buy um safe assets and so you see tremendous i guess inflation in in safe assets you've seen let's say a treasury yields are let's say you know 1.8 1.7 but inflation is five six percent right so part of the reason is because banks have a lot of reserves and things that banks buy their prices go higher no, Joseph, I don't think you're right. I think it has nothing to do with Basel III regulating that banks have to own treasuries. The 30-year treasury yield is is and always will be an accurate representation of forward growth and inflation expectations. That's like How dare you? Boomer economics. <laughs> <laughs> Just to that point, though, there really is a structural shift between pre-GFC and post-GFC. Like pre- Great financial crisis. Yeah, sorry, Post-GFC, you have Basel III. You have like a global central bank world where rates are zero in some places or negative, enormous amounts of quantitative easing. So I think the structure of the market and of course the rise of you know uh, passive investment. So you really have a structural change in how the markets behave. So I think a lot of people who were trading uh, pre-GFC may not fully realize that maybe the world is, is not as different. Another way, another, uh, it's different now. Another way to think about it is that there's less private sector involvement, more public sector involvement. So if you have more public sector invo- involvement, the, the prices are not going to be reflective so much of fundamentals, but the part of it's going to be reflective of policy choices because the government, it's, it, they're not there to make money. So um, just going pure fundamentals, is, in, when you look at longer dated rates, I think it, it, I think it will lead to conclusions that are, that are not accurate. Uh, I need to ask you a question about, I got we got to talk about the 50 basis point hike. Yeah, uh, yeah. So everyone knows that at, at least one basis, uh, one hike is going to happen in the March FOMC meeting. The current target rate is zero to 25. So that would raise it from 25 to 50, but a, a two rate hike would be 50 to 75. Uh, Powell kept the 50 basis point thing on the table. He didn't say, no, 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 that's not going to happen. But and then we have Bostic, uh, 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 chair uh, um, uh, of Atlanta, saying that that's that's possible. How are you sort of weighing 
the forward guidance, if you will, that the Fed is saying, because they put you know one Fed one Fed person out, they say this thing, they, then they put another, they say that thing. Do you think the Fed, are, do they want the optionality of a 50 basis point hike? Are they keeping it on the table? I think your your instinct is right. They want to keep it on the table. And that, that in of itself is a huge difference from the last hiking cycle. I mean, the Fed hasn't done 25 basis, I mean, 50 basis point hike in a, in a really long time. Now, even willing to do that, I think just shows there's a fundamental regime change in how the Fed is looking at things. Now, I, I don't know about Bostic. He's, he's been saying a lot of things. Like he's, he's the guy who said, I want to do at least $100 billion in QT, right? Now he's like, yeah, maybe we'll do 50 basis points. I don't know. Looks like he wants to have more media attention. <laughs> but his base case, though, is still three hikes uh, this year. Um, so forward guidance, I think, if you remember what Chair Powell said in his conference last time, we're going to be nimble. And we're going to be humble. So I think forward guidance in this context is going to be very different simply because the Fed, by its own admission, doesn't really know how things are going to evolve. They were saying that it would be transitory. It's not. Enormous indications that it's probably going to persist for some time. Now, in this context, though, the forward guidance is a lot more difficult. So you're going to have to widen your confidence bands. You have to include in that possibility of a 50 basis point height sometime. I think that base case is still 25 basis points if we get some data maybe for example let's say oil continues to rise and energy is a big input into uh, into consumer prices into any everything really you could see them acting more aggressively but at the moment uh, it's just on the table it's not the base case got it thanks joseph now i've got a, a pretty high level question that i i don't think a lot of people in this world can answer except for you uh the question is from someone on twitter called premium management who i think is a senior investment officer, uh, would be interesting to hear Joseph's take on the balance sheet guideline. Zoltan's comments on starting to move on the balance sheet quick, which was followed up this week by Esther George's comments on balance sheet adjustment. So way over my head, but I figure you can probably tackle that. I think Zoltan is recommending that the Fed actually sell some assets. Now, the Fed has never done that before uh, in the last QT. But it's it's not something that it can't do. If you look across the pond at the, at the Bank of England, they've also muttered that you know maybe we'll sell some assets too. My understanding from from Zoltan's note is that the Fed, uh, you know, might want to raise longer dated rates because right now inflation is high, economic growth is slow. So rather than putting things on autopilot, maybe they'll get more involved. They get to be able to choose. Uh, we're on the curve they want to make higher. So having that optionality selling might make sense. Um, I think by his own admission, that doesn't seem to be the base case because the Fed at its last meeting also announced its balancing normalization principles, stating that you know primarily it's going to be balancing runoff and not going to sell. And that's that's my impression as well, because um, selling is just it's it's a it's a lot more it's a lot more hawkish I think than than the Fed would like to do. Um, you know, I know that the, the, the Fed wants to have an imp, in, impact on longer dated rates by that's what QE is all about. But I, I don't know if they actually want to actually shape the curve and roll out some form of soft yield curve control at this moment, which is kind of what you would do if you actually start deciding what to sell. I mean, I mean, let's say the Fed actually started selling their treasuries. They would have to actually consciously decide where among the curve, where which point in the curve should I be selling, right? So in a sense, that would be um, some form of soft yield curve management, um, that, that it's going to be more precise than 
let's say QE was, which was purchasing everything uh, proportionately. It's, it's an extra tool they have, um, but I don't think that's the base case right now. Um, it could be later on, but in the option is there, but by their own principles, that's that's not the base case. Okay, got it. And just that's just to um, clarify, quantitative tightening is reducing, the, shrinking the Fed's balance sheet, and it can do that in two ways. It it, it owns you know assets that have a, a life cycle, um, you know, like the the life cycle of a tortoise is a hundred years, life cycle of you know a, a cat is nine years. Like you have different uh, maturities, different like life cycles of bonds, and if they own, as they constantly remind us, if they own a lot of short-term bonds, uh, notes, bills, whatever, then those expire and they don't they don't buy them back. So that has a quick so that has a quick redemption phase. However, the extreme and as as you note in I believe your penultimate post, what's it called quantitative tightening step by step, we can put a chart up. There's a natural limit on how much the Fed can tighten because only so much expires month by month. Uh, the more extreme solution, which which I believe the question asker is referring to, is actually selling assets, which which is more drastic. Um, Joseph, I think that this is a great transition for one of the final questions from from a poster called Volatility and Coffee, which I love their their Twitter handle, because uh, you mentioned about quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. How do they determine the structure? Uh, Volatility and Coffee wants to know what's the internal process within the Fed for determining that structure, whether to uh, whether to roll off short term versus long term debt, whether to do treasuries versus M- MBS. Can can you give some clarity on that? Um, I, I know in the most recent thing they said that they're going to buy fewer MBSs, right? Mortgage backed securities. Yeah. So overall, in the longer longer term, the Fed wants to have a portfolio of assets that's pure treasuries. So I think from their perception that if the Fed owns some MBS, they're basically in a way, um, allocating credit to the private sector, and they don't really want to be in that. Um, but I think the question has to do with how does the Fed... So when you're doing quantitative tightening, you're increasing the supply of treasuries to the private sector. And I th- my impression of the question was how do they go about doing that? Well, they actually don't decide. Um, so in the past, and that's that was actually Zoltan's point as well. So in the past, what would happen is that, so like you mentioned, an asset has a life, it expires, and then the Treasury pays back the Fed. Now, how does the Treasury pay back the Fed? They go out and they borrow from someone new. So that's how the, the, the balance sheet gets rolled off. Now, the question, though, is what tenor does, does the due debt is? And that's not the Fed who chooses it. That's the U.S. Treasury. So let's say we have five-year debt that rolled off today. How is the Treasury going to repay the Fed? They can go and they issue Treasury bills, which expire, let's say, in a few months. Or they can go and issue a 10-year Treasury which expires in 10 years. So it's the U.S. Treasury that has, has the power that decides the, uh, the maturity profile that replaces the Fed's portfolio. And so what a lot of people are watching right now is the quarterly, quarterly refunding announcement, which will happen, I think, tomorrow. Um, what they'll do is they'll talk about how they're going to go about issuing their debt, and that will tie into how, um, how the new supply to the private sector will, will look after the Fed uh, gets out of its treasury position. So Zoltan's point is that this is too passive for the Fed. The Fed should actually actively choose. So it's not just treasury that goes about deciding what shows up in the private market, that the Fed could actually actually sell itself so that the Fed would have more control over the curve. Whereas right now, it's all about um, how treasury is going to issue the new debt that they will use to get money to repay the Fed. Joseph, my final question for for you 
is you, you posted a recent report showing uh, that foreign investors sold treasuries during the March 2020 panic. Uh, this is something that I, I've just been obsessed over the fact that bonds are supposed to be a risk on ass, excuse me, a risk off asset. They, they are a hedge when the stock market crash, bonds should do well. And they did up until, I don't know, like March 9th of 2020. But from March 9th, 2020 to March 23rd, they behaved as a risk on asset. They sold off alongside stocks, alongside commodities and everything else. I'm uh, actually interviewing Alex Gervich later today. And he, you know, he, he wrote a book called The Trades of 2020. Yeah. Uh, you know, a play on the, the Ides of, the, excuse me, The Trades of March 2020, a play on the Ides of March, like Julius Caesar, you know. Um, <laughs> and he, he was like one of the people who, he's a macro hedge fund manager who, he, uh, a lot of the treasury positions are are financed. They 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 borrow a certain you know amount of money and they leverage that to to buy bonds. So I get why macro hedge fund managers had to sell their bonds because there's a huge run on cash. But your report, if I if I gather it correctly, it seems like countries were selling their bonds. Why would countries have to sell their bonds? You know, are are they subject to the same funding uh, limits? Like I I don't think the the Saudi Arabian sovereign wealth fund is you know borrowing 100x in the repo market, right? Or maybe it is. <laughs> Maybe it is. I don't know. It's a, kind of a secret thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, funny. Some people, some countries, like the SNB, actually take their 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 um, excess dollars and they buy stocks, like Apple stocks. So, uh, wait, wait, which country? Uh, it's the Swiss National Bank. They buy. They oh, buy oh, Swiss U National Bank. Yeah, yeah they buy U.S. Yeah, equities. Yeah. So the sovereigns, they're mostly very conservative, but some of them act differently. So. That's a really so that report was really interesting, and just as you noted, so we think of treasuries as a risk-off asset. So when everything comes crashing down, everyone runs to treasuries. That's what happened during the GFC. Uh, you know, there's huge stress in the markets. Everyone hid in treasuries, but in March 2020, the complete opposite happened. There's a huge distress, and everyone basically sold their treasuries. And that was that was a kind of a regime shift, and that caught everyone off guard. That had never happened before. And some people were thinking that maybe, maybe treasuries were losing their safe asset value. Um, so what this new post from the Fed shows, though, is that yes, people were selling their treasuries during March 2020. But if you look at their behavior afterwards, they started buying them back again. So it wasn't a regime change. And I think that this, what distinguishes what happened in March 2020 from the GFC is the nature of the crisis. So. Um, in the GFC, there was a crisis in the private financial sector. A lot of people didn't weren't sure if the banks were solvent or if their dealers were trustworthy or if the money funds would, uh, would, would go bust. So they were suspicious of the private financial sector, and so they took all their money and they ran into treasuries. So that's what happened in um, the GFC. But in the 2020 pandemic, though, that wasn't the case. What happened was that there was kind of a real economy stress, and people were worried and they wanted cash. So what did they do? They went and they withdrew their money from all their investment managers. And the investment managers had to sell treasuries to get money to repay them. And if you're a country, I mean, believe it or not, in many places in the world, US dollars are safer than their domestic currency. If you, if you go to Argentina, for example, people want to hold dollars. So oh, if you, there's actually this really cool graph about currency outstanding um, that the Fed puts out. Currency outstanding just kind of just goes higher. Um, during the GFC, you had a small bump upwards. During the COVID pandemic, you had this huge surge in currency outstanding. So people just want to hold dollars when they when they're worried. And so, where do they get their dollars? Even if they're a foreign foreigner, they ultimately um, they have to get it from their bank, and their bank gets it from the foreign central bank. So we had foreign central banks throughout the world um, selling their dollars, 
selling their treasuries to get dollars to give to their banks to give to their people. So it was a huge. Sorry, Joseph, aren't treasuries dollars though? Why, why should if I, I own thirty-year bond, I own dollars. I don't need to sell my bond to own dollars. I have dollars, right? Exactly, exactly. But depends on who you are. Again, what you think of as the money depends on who you are. If you're a giant investment manager, that's fine. But if you're just a retail investor or maybe a small business owner, uh, maybe you want to have dollars in your bank. Maybe you want to hold it in your hands. So there is this uh, strong demand for currency for dollars, and you see that in the currencies, uh, a currency that the Fed uh, on the Fed's chart, and you see it globally in, uh, in just this huge demand from foreign banks and foreign banks selling. And you can also see it in the FX swap lines, of course. Uh, people who don't have FX swap lines have to rely on selling treasuries to get dollars. If you have an FX swap line, though, you can just use that. And demand for FX swaps with the Fed was up to like $450 billion in 2020. So just a global dash for cash. That was that was the reason. And that's further heightened by the fact that, you know, after the panic passed, the foreign central banks started buying again. So they tried to rebuild their cash buffer. So. Uh, it doesn't seem like it was a regime change. It just seems like it was a panic into into dollars. And, and if anything, it, it just shows that when bad things happen, um, people still still trust the dollars more than 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 other things. Just a different form of dollars, though. Though not not so much treasuries, but let's say bank deposits and currency. Right. It, it wasn't a scramble out of the dollar. It was a scramble out of long term very interest rate sensitive products. But but I should note that they had rallied so hard and I'm just reading Alex Gervich's book, which really opening my mind. And I, I'd say Alex Gervich's book pairs really well with the knowledge that you know people can get, Joseph, from from your site, fedguy.com, as well as your book, uh, Central Banking 101. <laughs> um, and I, I think that, oh God, man, like I think the 30-year uh, bonds, if you look at the futures price, they went out of their like long-term trend channel. So they were very rich, which they almost never are based on the long-term trend channel based on March 9th. So it's kind of expects that they would sell off. So to say, oh, from March 9th to March 23rd, they had poor performance. That's kind of a, a cheap shot. However, Joseph, this is my thing. You said they go back to regime. The regime only matters during times of stress. Like from October, uh, October 2020, to, you know, uh, let's say October 2021, I don't really care. You know, the, the correlation between bonds and stocks is, oh, negative 0.2, it's plus 0.2, depends on what, how how the, the periodicity of how you, you roll the correlation. I don't really care. What I care about is when stocks sell off, which they finally are doing uh, in January of 2021, they have, you know, one of the worst Januaries ever. I, that's when I want my bonds to perform well. And they didn't do it in March and they didn't do it then. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so... I'm, I'm afraid to tell you that they're probably not going to do well. The correlation probably won't be the same going forward. Monetary policy is trying to, you know, hurt bond prices, right? That's what raising rates is. That's what selling selling bonds QT is, like increasing supply of bonds to the private sector. So, you know, bond prices are probably not going to do well going forward as long as we're still in this tightening regime. Um, and if the stock prices go down as well, then you might not have that, um, the correlation that you had before, that regime might be different. Mm. Joseph, I, I got to ask you, because you talked about dollar swap lines, you had a huge squeeze in the dollar, but that was tamed somewhat by dollar swap lines. The The huge squeeze in the dollar relates to the dollar milkshake theory, uh, uh, you know, made, made very popular by Brent Johnson. What are your thoughts on that theory? Do you think that do you believe in the dollar milkshake in a world without FX swap lines, but you just think that FX swap lines sort of tame that that wild price action? And then, you know, what do you think happened with 
with uh, March 2020? Like, do you think that there would have been a huge, huge dollar squeeze that even, even bigger than it was had not the Fed intervened? I think Brett makes a really interesting point in that he notices that there's a lot of dollar debt outside of this country, but, you know, they don't have access to lender of short facilities like like banks in the U.S. do. So if you're a borrower abroad and, you know, you have dollar loans and you can't pay them back, then your bank gets in trouble. And if your bank gets in trouble, they, they can't ha- they don't have access to a central bank to, to backstop them. So you have a potential for something that's very disorderly. Um if without FX swaps, that would definitely materialize. You would have just the dollar shooting to uncontrollable heights. You saw that already last March, and that 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 could go much much higher if there weren't dollar FX swaps. But when you have the Fed there, basically and acting as lender of last resort, not just to the U.S. but the entire world through the FX swap lines. And during the GFC, the the FX swap lines were over 500 billion. During the March 2020, they're about uh, 450. So that's a tremendous amount of money that the Fed is there backstopping the global dollar system. So without that, things would be very, very uh, disorderly. But if you have the Fed there standing out, willing to, to support the global dollar system, I think it's hard to have disorderly conditions. It's not in anybody's interest, including the Fed's, because if you have disorderly conditions in the dollar world outside of the U.S., that reverberates in the U.S. So it seems like tail risk scenarios are off the table as long as the Fed is willing to backstop the system. And they've repeatedly shown that they're willing to do that. Interesting. Um, got final question I, I have to ask because I know Byron just loves your work. This is a question for Byron who writes your newsletter. Seeing as banks can print money, how is it that a bank can ever go bust? So yeah, banks go bust all the time. How does it happen? If you, so if you have, well, I think, well, first of all, let's say if you are a one bank system, right? You, you create deposits and you have loans those deposits have to be redeemable for currency. So let's say that you create a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of loans that are bad, never get paid off, and everyone who who was using that money that you created comes to you and asks for a currency, then you know you, you won't be able to meet that because the loans you have won't be repaid back and you definitely don't have enough currency in the vaults. So you have to be able to have good loans on your on your balance sheet. If the loans don't pay off, you're going to have to take the loss. And if you take too many losses, you go bust. And that happens throughout history all the time. Mm, thank you. Uh, Joseph, you've been very generous with your time. Real pleasure. Looking, We're going to hopefully do this every week. And I think that uh, Tuesday will be our regular date. We, we may even try and do it live uh, uh, so, sooner rather than later. I know. Thank you so much, Joseph, for this and, and for engaging. But Joseph, I just got to ask you. Uh, your last post, uh, people got to follow your work on fedguy.com, follow you on Twitter at fedguy12, I believe. Definitely buy your book, Central Banking 101. But Joseph, I, I got to ask, the people, your last post was called QT Time Bomb, so prescient on January 18th. That was your last post. Joseph, when's the next post coming out? The people need to know. Uh, next week, next week. I'll, I'll write something next week. I have an idea in mind. Next week. Okay. And then also you want maybe want to give the people a, a little peek behind the curtain, a little bit of a glimpse into the project you're working on? Yeah. So it's kind of what I've been talking about w- with your audience here. So what happens when the Fed hikes rakes and how does that mechanically impact the financial system? Mechanically, you're getting haircuts. You're imposing losses throughout the financial system. The level of that losses is in proportion to the level of debt outstanding. And those losses sometimes get allocated in ways where you know, maybe it's allocated to someone who was highly levered. And so that forces them to sell. And I think that's the mechanics behind what happened in 2018. So in 2018, Fed was hiking, 
equity markets just kind of melted away, forcing the Fed to do a 180. Um, I expect something like that to happen as we go forward. Brilliant. Joseph Wang, Fed guy. It's been a pleasure. I'll talk to you next week. Bye, Doc. Thanks so much, Joseph. Thanks, everyone, for watching. 